Thanks, Wade. Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us this morning. As Wade just read, we will be in Romans 8, 28 through 30 this morning. So if you have a Bible, you want to uh, turn there or uh, get on your phone or iPad or whatever uh, it might uh, be, that's where we will be. And as you're turning there, I just want to say it's good to be back. Some of you might not have even noticed that I was gone. Uh, in my stead, you had uh, Zach and Tim, and they are uh, nothing if not loud and distracting. And, uh, and so like a leaky faucet or a concussion grenade or Justin Bieber or something like that. And uh, so some of you might not have even known that I was gone, but uh, the, gr- the elders graciously granted me uh, a couple of weekends away, and, uh, and so I got to do a bit of a vacation. My in-laws uh, love to take us on these sort of elaborate, uh, luxurious uh, vacations. That's just one of their ways that they show love to uh, Casey and, uh, and Larkin and myself. And so they uh, will take us to places like uh, Hawaii or to Laguna Beach or to Amarillo or you know, all the kind of luxurious places that you can imagine. But we actually just got back from Italy. Uh, and, uh, and so it was an incredible trip. It was actually our second time to go to uh, Italy. They took us there a few years uh, back, and, uh, and we loved it. But one of the drawbacks of both of these trips is that because of some circumstances, both trips, uh, our time in Rome was uh, cut really short. And so on our previous trip, three years ago, uh, our uh, time in Rome was cut short because there was such bad weather here at, uh, in the Metroplex that our flight was delayed, which meant that we then missed our connecting flight, which meant we missed 24 hours of our planned 72 hours in Rome. So we had to do uh, kind of Rome on a stopwatch. And, uh, and so we went and, uh, and we saw the uh, Vatican, the entire Vatican structure, St. Peter's, Sistine Chapel, all that kind of stuff in like two hours. And, uh, and then we did uh, the Colosseum and the Forum and the Pantheon and Trevi Fountain and Spanish Steps and all these sorts of historic places. We did that basically just kind of walking by. And, uh, and so really didn't get to sit and, uh, and soak any of these places. I would have loved to be able to sit and soak at the Colosseum or the Forum and to kind of imagine the early church there in Rome. It's, it's fun to be in Rome as we're preaching through Romans and think about the growth of the early church there or to think about Caesar addressing his subjects there in the Forum or to imagine Russell Crowe fighting Joaquin Phoenix in the Colosseum or whatever uh, it might be. But it was an, an incredible uh, trip for us. Uh, the one thing that we didn't get to do that I really wanted to do uh, that has been on the list both times, but we've not been able to do it, uh, are the uh, catacombs. And so that's kind of on the list uh, for next time. We found very quickly that uh, Rome with a two-year-old it's different than uh, Rome without a two-year-old. And so trying to see a foreign city with a two-year-old is kind of like trying to see a foreign city with a two-year-old. You can imagine it was uh, it's quite a bit of a challenge. But uh, this is good news because that just means that uh, my in-laws will have to take us back. There's things that we still want to see. So we've already begun filming videos of my little daughter asking uh, Lala and Papa to take her back to, uh, to Rome. So it's just a matter of time before they, uh, they cave. And so... Th- we all know there are some cities that you could probably see in a day. There are certain cities that you could see in an hour. As a child of Houston, I would say you could see it in a minute. You know, basically everything you need to see about Houston, uh, you just see in terms of feeling. You feel the oppressive heat and humidity, and you know, I don't want nothing to do with Houston. Uh, that's Houston. There are other cities, though, where it just you could be there for days and weeks and months and not kind of exhausted. These cities of cultural significance, cities of, these, uh, of history and architecture and food and all those kinds of things. And so uh, not only Rome, but you think of London, you think of a Paris, you think of Tokyo, you think of McKinney, kind of the big five, as I like to call them. And uh, so these places where uh, you just kind of could sit there all day long and not really soak up all that that city uh, has to offer. And Scripture is kind of like that. Now, there's a sense in which, you know, all Scripture, not a sense in which, it's just absolutely true that all Scripture is inspired, all Scripture is inerrant, all Scripture is authoritative, and therefore all Scripture is good. And yet there seems to be this distinction. Certain passages you could kind of look at, you could spend an hour kind of studying it and kind of 
get the broad contours of it. And then there's other passages where you could sit there for days and days and days on end just feasting on God's Word and never exhaust all the beauty, all the glory, all the splendor of it. And our passage is like that this morning. This particular passage, Romans 8, 28 through 30, we could spend all day here We won't, by the way. We'll spend about 45 minutes or so, but we could spend hours upon hours here and never really exhaust just the infinite glory of this particular passage. We won't even come close to doing that. We'll stop, we'll stare, we'll study for a little bit at what it means that God has foreknowledge. We'll stop a little bit on predestination. We'll look at God's calling. We'll look at justification. We'll look at glorification. But we won't even come close to exhausting all these things. And that's not my hope. To be honest with you, that's not my hope. My hope is simply to give you a taste for the glory, for the beauty, for the splendor of this passage, leaving you wanting to come back for more. So let's pray, and then we will uh, dive in just want to ask first that you would pray for yourself, that the Lord would give you eyes to see and uh, ears to hear. And then would you pray that for those around you as well? The Lord would give us collectively an opportunity to really hear and heed this word. And then would you pray for me, just with uh, jet lag and a short period of time to really kind of sit and meditate on this. So, Father, we ask just for your grace and your mercy this morning that you would uh, show that you're a good Father who gives good gifts, and you've given us the gift of your Word. And, uh, and so, may it uh, challenge us, may it convict us, may it encourage us, may it comfort us this morning. We ask these things because you're good and you do good. And so, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We'll begin in uh, verse 28 which says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Notice how we begin here in this passage. It says, we know. Similar to uh, what uh, Tim talked about a couple of weeks ago as he talked about Christian hope. Christian hope is not wishful thinking. It's not cross your fingers, close your eyes, and just hope that you get what you're hoping for, what you're longing for. It's certain. It's assured. It's secure. Likewise, with this knowledge, we know that this is the case. There's no ifs, there's no buts, there's no maybes to this. This is absolutely certain and secure. Explicitly, objectively, definitively, this is the case. We know this. So while we may never grasp the depths of the contours of this grace that this passage is about this morning, it's entirely possible for us to rest in it to know that this is true, and to know that this is good. So let's begin by talking about the recipients of this promise. To whom is this promise made that God works all things together for good? And we see two criteria here in the verse. It talks about those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. Now, what we shouldn't do is we shouldn't say that those are two separate criteria that we have to meet such that someone could meet one criteria. They really love God, but they don't meet the other. They're not called according to His purpose. Or that some are called, but they don't really love God. We're intended to see these as complementary, as inseparable graces, uh, as inseparable ways of talking about the same group of people, the elect, the saints, believers, Christians. This promise that we're talking about, is for all Christians and only Christians. This promise is for all Christians and only Christians. There is no Christian, there is no believer who is cut off from this promise, and there is no such promise for those who are outside of Christ. God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Now, we'll talk about what it means to be called according to God's purpose in the next verse because it talks about calling there, so we'll tackle that in a moment. But first, let's just talk about what it means uh, by those who love God. We see a few places where Paul uses this language of believers. Uh, He describes believers as those who love God. We'll put a few of them up on the screen. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed our Lord come. By the way, that our Lord come is uh, Maranatha, if you've ever heard that word. 
Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Ephesians 6, 24, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So you see, there's a few places where Paul will talk about, he'll describe Christians as those who love God. That said, biblical authors, Paul, uh, in addition to all the other New Testament authors, don't tend to focus on our love for God, but instead on God's love for us. You see, our love is reactionary. It's secondary. It's an effect, not a cause, whereas God's love is primary. God's love is initiatory. God's love is the cause, and our love is the effect. You're probably familiar with 1 John 4.19, which says, we love because, can anyone finish that? Because He first loved us. The Bible grounds our love for God in God's love for us. So as we'll see, as we'll carry on through this passage, that God foreknows, He predestines, and He calls us, all of these things He does before we respond at all to Him. He's loved us long before we loved Him. But once He calls us, once He effectually draws us to Himself with His irresistible grace, once He's called us, we respond with faith and repentance and tied closely to those, interwoven with those, is our love for Him. There is no genuine faith that isn't rooted in love. Love and faith are kind of like light and heat. You strike a match, and instantaneously there is both light and heat. That is like faith and love. They're inseparable graces. And so he can describe those who believe, those who have faith, as those who love God. Now, that's the way that he describes us, and yet I would imagine that for a number of us in this room, that love isn't our first thought that we think of as we think of our sort of initial primary response to God's grace. Our primary response, the primary way that we think of God, I would imagine for a lot of us, is not love. Love is not the first verb that pops into our mind. We think of obedience. We think of submission. We think of repentance. We think of faith. But love, love is this difficult concept, similar to what we talked about a few weeks back. For a lot of us, it's easy to think of God as Lord or as Savior, as Creator, as King, but it's really hard for us to think of Him as Father. Well, likewise, it's really easy for us maybe to think of faith, obedience, and submission, but maybe it's a lot harder for us to think of love. For many of us, we kind of wrestle with that idea. Many of us would find it awkward or strange to say, I love you. Some of us, maybe even whenever we're praying, we don't even say that because it feels a little bit weird. It feels strange. It feels awkward. So if that's you, if you find yourself this morning where that doesn't kind of flow naturally out of your mouth, it kind of feels like a foreign language to you to think of loving God, to tell God that you love Him, to tell others that you love Him, to feel love for Him, let me give you a brief exhortation. Two parts. First part, know that something's wrong. Know that something is wrong, something is broken, that you should have this sort of a, a sense of God's goodness and loveliness and glory that compounds, compels you to love Him. So that's the first thing. You should love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. But second, my exhortation, my encouragement to you is, would you confess that? Would you confess that to God and to others? Don't compound the sin of apathy, the sin of indifference. Don't compound that with the sin of hypocrisy. Would you begin to pray, even as this uh, a father once cried out to Jesus, and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. Would you do that? Would you cry out to God and say, I love you. Would you help me to love you more? Would you help me to even feel that, to know what that even means? Because it feels foreign to me. So that's the who of this promise, those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now let's talk about the what of the promise. What is the promise? What's simply this, that all things work together for good. That's one of those sort of coffee cup bumper sticker uh, verses. You might fit kind of on your couch with all the other little cliches that you have crocheted onto pillows, like time heals all wounds, or if God closes one door, he opens another or God will not give you more than you can handle, or when life gives you lemons, make lemonade, or whatever 
it might be. So let's talk a little bit about this promise because I don't want it to just remain cliche because if it's just cliche, it kind of is dull and loses its glory and loses its power to actually affect our hearts, which is what this is intended to do. So let's talk about it for a second. I want to just break it apart bit by bit. First, talk about what does it mean when he says all things? Then what does it mean when he says work together? And then what does he mean by good? Each of those uh, I want to take bit by bit. So first, all things. All things work together for good. You might think all things surely doesn't mean all things. That might sound naive to you. It might sound like calloused indifference to the reality of life in a fallen world. So what does Paul mean? Well, it always is helpful to begin with a bit of context. So we'll put it up on the screen. Romans 8, 17 through 18. You can see uh, this is just about 10 verses or so before. Uh, Paul has written, If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If we were to continue on in 19 through 23, which we preached through a couple of weeks ago, we see that creation is groaning, even as we ourselves are groaning, as we're longing, as we're yearning for something we don't yet have, because all things have been subjected to futility in the fall. If we were to continue on, what we'll talk about over the next couple of weeks, Romans 8, 35 through 36, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Listen to the things that he mentions, shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So what's the context of this passage? Suffering, sorrow, hardship, tribulation, persecution, death, pain, sadness, and on and on we could go. It's not hard to believe that all things work together for good when life is good when things are easy, but when life is hard, when life hurts, that's when this becomes difficult to embrace. But the one area that I think most of us would might want to maybe put a parenthesis on this promise, we want to put an exception on this promise, the one area where it feels like this promise is, is slippery for us and not secure footing is the very area that the context is screaming for this to be applied and that is suffering. Now, I'm not saying that all things only means suffering. The sparrow that falls to the ground, the lot that is cast into the lap, the rising and setting of the sun, all things really does mean all things. God's sovereignty knows no limits. There's no crack or crevice into which His sovereignty doesn't reach. All I'm simply saying is that all things includes suffering, the very thing that we want to exclude from this, the very thing that we think, I don't know how in the world this promise squares with my reality, the reality of my life, which is full of pain and hurt and suffering. So all things means all things. And yet, there is one possible exception, and it's not really even an exception. It's more a misinterpretation and a misapplication. And so I want to mention it only so that we don't go down this particular road that we're not intended to go down. Suppose you read this promise and you think, well, if all things work together for good, then I can just sin. I can just sin all I want and God will work it to good. And I would tell you, beware of that evil thinking and that evil heart. Paul's already addressed that sort of disposition towards sin and toward grace. Romans 3.8 We've read this before, and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. We don't do evil that good may come. Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He'll go on from that and say, may ginata. May it never be. Certainly not. Romans 6.15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. So can God use your sin to accomplish good in your life? Absolutely. Absolutely He can. Anyone who's familiar with my testimony knows that it was profound lust and pride that the Lord used to draw me to Himself. So can, can God use our sin 
to bring us towards something good, absolutely. But can we bank on that reality and sin all the more with impunity, with that intention in mind? Absolutely not. That's not the way that someone who loves God thinks. So all things mean all things, and yet we know this is not a license to sin. That's the all things there. Let's talk about what it means when he says that they're working together. Notice this passage doesn't say that all things are good. There's a world of difference between saying all things work together for good and all things actually are good. Cancer isn't good. A miscarriage isn't good. Sexual assault and sexual abuse aren't good. What happened on September 11, 2001 wasn't good. The Bible doesn't turn a blind eye to suffering. God doesn't call a spade a heart. No, the Bible is unabashedly going to recognize that there is evil, that there is wickedness, that there is badness within a fallen world. God created the world good, but bad, that evil, but wickedness has been introduced into the world through the fall. So that's not what the passage is saying. The passage doesn't say all things are good. It's saying God works all things together for good. Somehow, in God's mysterious sovereignty, He takes all the ingredients of our suffering and our sorrow, and He blends them together into something good. So let's talk about what good is. If we're going to understand the power of this passage, the power of this promise, we've got to understand what the meaning of the word good is. The passage isn't saying that, uh, that suffering is good. The passage isn't saying that God's people don't suffer. So what does it mean? Here's how a lot of people think this promise works. They, t- they think that Romans 8.28 basically means this, that something bad happens to you and God takes it and just makes something good happen to you kind of instantly. You don't get the job that you want, so God takes that hardship, that God takes that suffering He puts it in his easy-bake prosperity gospel oven, and voila, out pops this even better job. You don't marry that person that you really love. They break up with you. They break things off, whatever it might be. Well, then God just gives you an even better spouse. That's how a lot of people think uh, of this. You get terribly, terribly sick. You have to go to the hospital, and so you miss that cruise that you you had been saving up for 10 years to take. and then that cruise ship sinks. That's what people think of this particular passage. That's not Romans 8.28. That's called karma. That's not what this passage is talking about at all. Biblically, you might get no job. You might get no spouse. You might be sick while on the sinking ship with no spouse. (laughs) And the Bible would say God is still good, and this passage is still true. So what does it mean when it says that all things are worked together for good. What is good? What is the criteria? What is the standard for assessing, for measuring goodness? Is it what makes us happy? Is it health and wealth? Well, no, that isn't the measurement. All those things are subjective. This passage is talking about an objective goodness. You see, God defines what is good, not our feelings, not our emotions. Happiness, health, wealth, all of these things, they ebb and flow. But this goodness that it's talking about here is solid, it's secure, it's unchanging. So what is it? Well, we'll see it in the next verse. It's described as being conformed to the image of Christ. If you want to know what is good, this is the answer. What is good for you above anything and everything else is that you be conformed to the image of Christ. That is it you be conformed to the image of Christ. And this passage is saying that God works all things together to that end. If you remember last week, Zach talked about how we don't even know what to pray for as we ought. We don't even know what to pray for as we ought. We're finite. We're not only broken in our sin, but we're just broken in the fact that we're people. We're not omniscient. We're not God. If we don't even know what to pray for as we ought, how in the world can we be trusted to decide what is and is not good. What is good is not necessarily what makes you happy. It's what gets you more of God. That's the standard for goodness. God Himself is the standard for goodness. God's promise for your good is that He will give you Himself in a resurrected body 
on a recreated, renewed earth, you will dwell forever in the presence of God. That is good. As long as you have some sort of ideal, some sort of standard for goodness that stands above the glory of God, this passage is not going to to be of much comfort to you. As long as your heart is not attached to the goodness of God, if that's not what gives you pleasure and comfort, then this passage is not going to give you pleasure and comfort because that's the promise of this passage. The psalmist, I think in particular, really understood this. We'll put a few passages up there which really express this idea. Psalm 16, 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Psalm 73, 28, but for me it is good to be near God. What is good for you? To be near God. Psalm 34, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 119, 68, you are good and you do good. That's the standard of goodness. Whatever gets us more of God, that's our ultimate standard. That's our ultimate criteria for what is good. So all things work together for good because all things in the context of Romans 8 are working together for your glorification when you will dwell forever with the the eternal source of good himself, that is God. So why do all things work together for good? Because God's unstoppable purpose in calling you to salvation cannot be thwarted, cannot be frustrated. And so he ordains and he utilizes all things, all things to bring you to himself. You see, what he does is he submits your lesser desire for a lifetime that's free of pain to his greater desire for you to experience an eternal life of pleasure, infinite pleasure and infinite joy. So now we get to the reason or the theological basis for this promise. We see it in verse 29 which says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You know that, uh, that famous line of poetry? Most people assume that it's by Shakespeare, but it's actually by Elizabeth Barrett Browning that says, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. Well, this is an opportunity for us to do that this morning with this passage. This passage is saying that how has God loved us? Let us count the ways, foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. Five different things, one for each finger, like a beautiful diamond on each of them. So we'll begin with foreknowledge. What is foreknowledge? Well, when it comes to God's foreknowledge, most people think that it just simply refers to God's knowledge of the future. They they assume that when it says that God, those whom God foreknows, He predestines, that that simply means that God gets into His time machine and kind of quantum leaps forward He looks into the future. He sees who would and would not freely choose him. Then he goes back in time, and those people who are going to freely choose him, he predestines. Now, does God know the future? Yes. Is that what foreknowledge means in the Bible? No. That is not what foreknowledge means in the overwhelming majority of places and uses within the uh, New Testament. So to see why that's not what foreknowledge means, we need to consider the Old Testament context. The Old Testament context, there's a number of places where it talks about God knowing someone. Notice it doesn't say that God knows something. It says, for those whom He foreknew in this passage. We're talking about God's knowledge of someone, not something. It doesn't say that God knows what you will do. It says that God knows you. So in all the places where it talks about God's knowing someone, Let's see how it talks about him. And what we'll see is that it, it, it is uh, something that is not merely referring to what God thinks, but what God feels. It's God knows not merely with his mind, but also with his heart. Consider some of the following passages. Exodus thirty-three seventeen. The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God is not simply saying here, Oh, I remember your name's Moses. But then when Aaron comes along, he's like, beardy. And when Miriam shows up, he's like, hey, girl. Like, that's not what it's saying. He's not what it's saying, I know you by name. It's not simply saying, I know this fact about you. He's saying, no, I know you with this covenantal love. I've set my affections upon you. I've chosen you. I've set my covenant upon you. Or Amos 3.2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquity." 
It says God only knows Israel. Israel's the only nation that God knows. That doesn't mean that God just forgets about the Egyptians and the Assyrians, the Babylonians. No, it means that Israel is the only nation that He's made covenant with, that He's set His electing love upon. That's what knowing is. When God knows someone, it's a reference to intimacy. It's a reference to His, uh, his loving them. So when it says that God foreknows, it means that He foreloved, that He chose, that He drew to Himself, that He sets His covenant Upon. We see this same usage of the word know in human terms as well. First, Tim, uh, First Samuel 2.12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. They're sons of Eli. They're sons of the priest. So certainly they know about God, but the passage says they don't know Him. So with that background in mind, we've, we can begin to kind of work through what it means that God foreknows His people. It doesn't mean that God just simply knows the future and He foreknows who will or will not choose Him. We've already read, as we read Romans 3, we've already read, no one seeks for God. No, not one. No one seeks for God. There's no line of people that God would look into the future and see these people who are waiting by their free will to get into heaven. That doesn't exist. So those whom God loves, those whom He knows in this sense, those whom He foreknew, He chooses and calls to Himself. So it's not merely saying that God foresees, but that He foreordains, that before time He set His covenantal love upon you and me. Here's why this is really important, because it frees us. God's love is not grounded in some condition that you meet which means it cannot be adversely affected by you. Let's suppose it's based on your wealth. God loves the wealthy. Well, what happens when you declare bankruptcy? Let's say that it's based on your intelligence. Well, what happens when you get Alzheimer's? You see, this is the greatest news in the world, that God's love for you is not dependent upon you because it means you can't mess it up. God's love is secure. It's safe. It's deposited somewhere where it cannot be touched by you where it can't be broken, where it can't be messed up, where it can't be bent. It's in the very heart of God. So foreknowledge is going to ground everything in this passage because God has loved you, because He's foreknown you. He is predestined. He's called. He's justified. He's glorified you. This foreknowledge is where it all begins, that God's foreknowledge, that is His eternal love for the elect, is the foundation, if you will, upon which these four walls of calling and predestination and justification and and glorification. These walls in which our hope lives are all built on the foundation of God's foreknowledge. So let's look at the first thing that he talks about beyond that, which is predestination. We've spent four weeks, the past four weeks, on predestination and theological equipping, so I'll perhaps naively lean on the hope that most of you were there, or if you weren't there, you were able to listen online. This is one of the, of the most complex topics in the entire Scriptures. They're trying to work through it as just one little part of this uh, particular sermon won't do it justice, kind of like trying to see all of Rome in like 10 minutes or something like that. So hopefully you'll check out some of those resources if you haven't all ready. So what is predestination? Well, it is God appointing and ordaining a certain end. God's appointing and ordaining a certain end. And what is the end to which He has predestined His children, according to this passage? What is the end to which He has predestined His children? In other words, those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. What is that purpose? According to this passage, is that we might be conformed to the image of Christ and that we might share in His family, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Someone once wrote of this section that uh, the, the summary of what's happening here is that the Spirit of God carries out the will of God to make the child of God like the Son of God, which I think is, uh, is great. Because God has foreknown you, loved you from before the foundation of the world, He has predestined you to be conformed to the image of Christ. This is the good that we talked about in Romans eight twenty eight. So what does being conformed to His image mean? Well, in the context of verse 30, it means glorification. And what's that mean? Well, in the greater context of Romans 8, Tim talked about it a couple of weeks ago, in the rest of the New Testament, 
glorification and being conformed to the image of Christ refers to our resurrection. In fact, we'll see this language if we were to look into 1 Corinthians 15, which is the most extensive treatment in all of Scripture on uh, resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, notice here, in the context of resurrection, that's what 1 Corinthians 15 is about, notice this uh, mention of bearing the image or being conformed to the image of Christ. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we also shall bear the image of the man of heaven. So in Paul's mind, being conformed to the image of Christ overlaps with resurrection. So that's the goal the end to which you were predestined, that you might be conformed to the image of Christ, that you might share in the resurrection, that you might be, to use the language of the next verse, glorified. This is the eternal purpose of God. But how is that accomplished in time? That's what calling and justification are all about. So let's look at the next verse. Verse 30, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, he also glorified. So now what we're doing is we're moving from God's desire and God's design in eternity past that we've seen in foreknowledge and predestination, and we're now moving to when that actually begins to work itself out in God's sovereignty in time. You are always foreknown, always predestined, but there is a point in time in which you are called and justified. So we're moving from eternity past into the application of that purpose for us uh, in time. So here's what I want to do with, uh, with this verse. I want to uh, just discuss these three verbs, called, justified, and glorified. I want to talk about what each of those means, and then I want to uh, end by just talking why this entire passage is, uh, is good news. That's it. These three verbs, called, justified, glorified, what do those things mean? And then why is this entire passage good news for us? So let's begin with called. What does it mean when it says that those whom He predestined, He also called. In order to understand this, we, we need to talk about the very thing that we talked about in theological equipping this morning. So if you were there, feel free to just kind of nod knowingly to me, uh, and feel free to then look smugly at those around you who weren't there, and, uh, and just kind of shake your head at them in disgust or disapproval or whatever uh, it might be. So this morning we talked about what's often called uh, irresistible grace. It's also known as the effectual call. You see the word there, call. This is what calling is. It's an example of irresistible grace, God's effectual call on us. And we distinguished it from what's called the general call. There's a sense in which all are called to believe. Simply by being in this room, I'm calling you right now, I'm calling you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's just a general gospel call. I can't actually make you believe. I can't actually affect your heart. I can't actually change your affections or your emotions or your desire or your will. That's the general gospel call. But what this passage is talking about is not that general gospel call. It's talking about an effectual call. You see, when God speaks, something happens. God affects what He intends to affect. The illustration that we use is imagine I go to a cemetery and I speak to the tombs and I speak to those lying in the tombs and I say, get up move. It doesn't affect anything. But when Jesus stands at Lazarus's grave and He says, come forth, there's power in it. He affects what He intends to do. That's the effectual call of God. So, if you're called in this sense, according to this passage, then you are justified and you will be glorified, which means that not all are called in this Romans 8.30 sense or else all would be justified. Does that make sense here? Notice the five links in the chain from foreknowledge through predestination, through calling, through justification, through glorification. Those are called the kind of the five links in the golden chain of salvation. None fall through the cracks is sort of the idea there. That all who are foreknown are predestined. All who are predestined are called. All who are called are justified. So this call is something that is effectual. God draws you to Himself in this calling. Raise your hand if you can remember a time when people didn't have caller ID, right? Some of you don't remember that, and I know that you're old enough to remember that, all right? 
most of us who are over, I don't know what the cutoff is, 25 or something like that maybe, uh, remember a time where you didn't have caller ID. And so you'd be at home and your phone would ring and what would you do? You would answer it, which sounds crazy to us today. Who answers a phone call from someone if they don't know who's calling? But back then you did because you didn't know who's calling and you had no way of knowing who's calling. So unless you were like in the shower or in the bath or maybe if you're eating dinner with your family or something, you just answered the call, right? Now today, raise your hand if you just automatically answer the phone no matter who calls. Most of us are probably not. Somebody raised their hand. Thank you, Preston. I know that that's not true. I think I've called you before and you didn't answer. (laughs) Most of us don't do that. Why not? Well, because we don't answer uh, calls from numbers that we don't recognize. What the Bible is saying, that general gospel call is like back then, all right? The general gospel call, it just goes out. But you don't recognize the number because you don't recognize God. You don't love God. The gospel called Jesus comes and it says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We just read it and sang it earlier. And yet you don't recognize the number. So you don't answer it. That's the general gospel call. We need something more effective than that. We need something to actually change our hearts and our affections and our desires. That's what's called effectual calling. We read this uh, quote in, uh, in Theological Equipping. So I want to mention it here. It's from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It says, Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to us in the gospel. So effectual calling is effective. It accomplishes what it sets out to accomplish. In other words, God never gets a busy signal. God never has to leave a message. When God effectually calls, you answer always. God overcomes any resistance that you experience. That's what irresistible grace is. Not the idea that you can't resist God's common grace, but that God's special grace can overcome any resistance that you might experience. So when God effectually calls, you answer. Think of a modern sort of Juliet receiving a call from Romeo. She's going to answer that phone call. Why? Because she's, uh, she, she has a heart that goes out toward him. She loves him. She cares for him. That's what this passage is talking about. That's the effectual call that God gives us a new heart in regeneration and that heart finds Him lovely and so we answer the call. In fact, being called in this Romans 8 sense is synonymous with being saved. 1 Corinthians 1.24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, not all are called in this particular sense. So all who are foreknown are predestined And all who are predestined are called into relationship with Him. In order to establish that relationship, we are justified. So what is justification? We spent weeks working through this. In fact, justification lies at the very heart of what the book of Romans is about. So we won't spend a whole lot of time uh, on it. But I did want to refresh us with a definition that we came up with, which is that justification is the act of God whereby He credits those who are unrighteous as having the status of righteous, which means the absence of evil and the presence of moral perfection. Because of sin, you are in debt. Not a small debt, not a little debt. You are in infinite debt to an infinitely good Creator. You have this infinite debt against you. And in justification, what God does is God pays your debt. But not only does God pay your debt, He also credits to your account this infinite righteousness. He cancels out your infinite debt and He credits to your account an infinite righteousness, the very righteousness of Christ Himself. That's justification. So the passage is saying that all who are foreknown are predestined. Those who are predestined are called. Those who are called are justified. That's what it's saying there. That He's given you a new heart that repents and believes, and when you repent and believe that you are justified, and that it's as certain as God's foreknowledge and His predestination. It's as certain as God's love Himself. Those whom He loves, He pursues and draws unto Himself so that they would repent and believe, and He would justify. Let's talk about the last link in the chain, glorified. What does that mean? Well, there's three things that I want us to note. First, I want us to note that your glorification is as certain 
as your justification, which is as certain as your calling, which is as certain as your predestination, which is as certain as foreknowledge, as certain as God's love itself. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. If I were Paul, I would not have written it like that. If I were Paul, I would have written, those whom he justified, past tense, he will glorify, future tense. But that's not what Paul writes. The reason that he doesn't write it is, I think, because he wants us to see that our glorification is absolutely as certain as our justification, which is as certain as our calling, which is as certain as God's predestination of those whom he loves. If you are justified, you will surely, you will certainly, you will indisputably be glorified. That's the first thing to note about glorification. Second, I want us to note that though this is a certainty, it's not yet accomplished. This is an eschatological term, which is just this, this fancy uh, theological term for something that concerns the end. The end times. That's what eschatology means. Eschaton or eschatos means end times, things concerning the end. So when will you be glorified? In the resurrection. We talked about that uh, already. This is what it will mean to bear the image of Christ, to share His resurrection, to partake of the new creation where there will be no suffering, there will be no sorrow, no tears, no death, no pain, any of those sorts of things. That's the second thing I want you to note. The third, to note just the baffling beauty of what this passage is saying that God is doing. If you were with us back in Romans 1, we talked about the fundamental problem with mankind, the root issue, the chief root fundamental problem with mankind is that we fail to glorify God and honor Him as we should. That's what Romans 1, that's what the entire book of Romans is precipitated on, the idea that we are so mired in sin that we do not glorify God. And yet, He doesn't destroy us. He doesn't condemn us. We belittle Him. We trade His glory for trinkets. And yet, in an incredible demonstration of the splendor of His grace and mercy, the passage says that He glorifies us. He glorifies those who fail to glorify Him. That's either utter folly or glorious beyond comparison. Which is, by the way, why Paul will end this in a couple of uh, chapters by just breathing out praise at the sheer glory and scandal of God's grace. Those whom He justified, He glorified. That's a bit of a whirlwind sort of tour of Romans 8.28. So before we kind of pack our bags and go home, I just want to uh, mention one last thing. I want to conclude by considering the question, why is this good news? We have this passage, Romans 8, 28 through 30. Why is this good news for us? And there's a, a handful of reasons. There's a number of different things that we could say here, but I just want to mention two in particular why this is good news for us. First, because this is a solid foothold in the midst of suffering. Most cliches that we talk about are sort of slippery. They're shaky when God when life gives you lemon, make lemonade, or time heals all wounds. We've probably all experienced some wounds that never really healed. And so most cliches are kind of slippery. They're kind of shaky. We don't want to put all of our weight on them because we're not really sure if they can hold up. But I'm telling you, this passage can actually hold up. This passage means that no matter what it is that you're going through, it isn't beyond the grasp, the grip of God's sovereignty or His grace or His love. Even in your hardship, He's working together for your good. As we say all the time, He's a good Father and He gives good gifts to His children. Only good gifts. And always good gifts. I look around the room and I see some of you are suffering right now. Right here, right now, you're in the midst of a difficult, difficult season of affliction. Just our little church, there's cancer there's desperately ill children and spouses. There's unemployment. There's chronic debilitating illnesses. There's deaths in the family. And on and on we could go. This passage doesn't mean that we don't suffer. It doesn't promise that we'll understand our suffering. But it does mean that God is good and gracious and sovereign and that your prayers and your tears are never wasted. As we read a, a, a couple of weeks ago, there will one day 
be a day when we realize that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So if you feel as though your suffering is too harsh, if you feel as though your suffering somehow is an exception to this passage, then my encouragement to you is to go back and to look at the glory that you will experience, to look at the promises that God has made of His very presence, of dwelling together in His presence. You think far too little of eternity and resurrection and eternal, infinite joy if you can compare your suffering to those things. That's the first good news, that there's no difficulty, that there's no tribulation, no sorrow or suffering that falls beyond the scope of God's grace and mercy and power. The second thing is that this is good news because it proves perseverance of the saints, and it gives us assurance of salvation. If this passage is true, then that means you cannot lose eternal life. Think about the logic of this passage for a second. Eternal life isn't eternal if it can be lost. If God works all things together for good, then losing salvation isn't possible because losing salvation would be the very opposite of what is good. God can't glorify those whom He condemns. Furthermore, this passage has already said that everyone who is foreknown will be predestined, and everyone who is predestined will be called. And everyone who is called will be justified, and everyone who is justified will be glorified. No one falls through those cracks. It is impossible to do so. If you somehow think that you're able to outsend the grace of God, then you think far too highly of your abilities, and you think far too little of God's grace and God's sovereignty. You give yourself far too much power or credit. So those are the two things that I want us to just kind of pull away from this passage. One is this is a solid foundation in the midst of suffering. And I know that many of us in this room are suffering. And those of us who aren't suffering today, suffering is coming. And the second thing is for those of us who have anxiety, those of us who have fear, who are uncertain of God's love, I would say your glorification is as certain as your justification, which is as certain as your calling, which is as certain as your predestination, which is as certain as God's love Himself. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for um, this Word this morning, this Word which uh, should be um, a, uh, a refuge in the midst of the storms of life. Lord, Your Word doesn't promise thus that uh, we won't experience the storms of suffering, but Your Word does promise us hope in the midst of it. And so I pray that our hearts would rest there, that we would be encouraged, that we would be comforted by knowing not only that You are good, but You do good and You work all things together for good because those whom You have foreknown, You have predestined and called and justified, and You will ultimately glorify. That's the promise of this passage. I pray that you would help our hearts to rest in it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.